Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? That's a haunting question. Again, I hope you have your text opened in front of you to Galatians 4.21. This is, as we've mentioned earlier, a very difficult ch chapter to understand and to interpret, uh, to apply to our lives, and so it's very important that you have it in front of you. Now, having said that, it's going to take us a little bit of time to get there uh, because we really need a running start into this text. Um, you know by now that the Galatian churches had been offered the gospel of Jesus Christ by Paul. They had responded. Uh, they had accepted that salvation by faith, and then some false teachers came in and said, well, you know, there's more to it than that. Uh, accepting Jesus, that's fine, but you know, don't you, that you need to be a child of Abraham. You need to be a part of the tradition and the lineage and the people of God as found and expressed in the Old Covenant times. In other words, you need to be a part of the religion of Israel, and so you need to observe the law. You need to keep the Sabbath uh, regulations. You need to observe circumcision. You need to keep the dietary rules. Uh, all those things will make you a child of Abraham. And then if you're a child of Abraham, you can be a child of God. Uh, in other words, the false teachers were coming and they were saying this, this gospel of faith in Christ is fine, but there's something you have to do first before God will accept you. There is maybe no more important message to hear this morning than this. It is in Christ alone. Christ alone. You know, some of us have grown up in environments where we received a message that said, no, there's something else. You have to be good. You have to keep rules and regulations. You have to make sure that your dress style and your hairstyle is about five to ten years behind the times because that makes you conservative and you're better. Uh, we've heard some who have said, no, you have to be a part of a particular religious tradition or you have to uh, sit a particular way in the pew and hold your Bible in a certain direction. You know, we, we've, we've encountered people and we've absorbed some kind of message that uh, until we get our act together, God won't really love us. And that's just a variation of what the Galatian Christians were being told, that until you get your act together in the law, God can't really love you, can't really uh, use you, lead you. God can't really conform you to his will. And so uh, this message of religion was just attached to it. Uh, some of us have, have given in to the fad preaching of the moment that, that talks about Jesus as though he were some kind of ATM machine and that you put your little credit faith card in and you have to pull and you pull out a blessing and you, you get the, the return and you can just draw on God's bank account because he has to give this to you when you plant your seed faith. You know, those kinds of things. We, we, we've just gotten a distorted gospel in our head this morning, we need to know that in Jesus Christ and in Him alone, you are a child of Abraham. See, when the false teachers came to Galatia and they said, you need to keep the law, you need to keep all these rules and regulations that go along with the Jewish tradition and religion, 
Paul's first response in chapters 1 and 2, Paul's first response was, I did not get Jesus that way. I wasn't saved that way. I mean, if anybody knew the law, it was Paul. And Paul knew that if you studied the law, that didn't save you. He knew that if you had massive verses in the Torah memorized, that didn't save you. He knew that if you obeyed all the uh, smallest rules and regulations about how much you could work on the Sabbath, how far you could travel, what work you could do and could not do, he knew that that wouldn't save you. He knew that going to the temple wouldn't save you. He knew that the sacrifices wouldn't save you. Paul would say, I was not saved by the law because I had plenty of law in my life already. Paul said, I was saved on the road to Damascus when I was on my way to persecute the people of God in Christ. And on that road to Damascus, Jesus stopped me in my tracks and he had me look up into his eyes and he said, Paul, when you persecute these Christians, you're persecuting me. And suddenly I realized that this is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This Jesus is written, risen. He said, I was saved when I met Jesus face to face and I fell in love with him and I gave my life to him in faith. That's when I was saved, Paul would say. See, there is no other gospel. That's why Paul said anybody comes and tells you there's something else other than Jesus, let them be accursed. Let them be anathema. Anybody comes along and tries to peddle to you a gospel that has something in it other than the grace of God received by faith, don't listen to them. That's not how I was saved. So that's Paul's first answer. He says, that's not how I received Jesus. By the way, he says to the Galatians, he says, you didn't either, did you? says, you didn't receive the Spirit by works of the law. Wasn't it by faith? That's the way it is. That's Paul's first response. Paul's second response is, well, if you want this law thing, if you want religion, understand you can't do it. If you say, I I want to be saved by my works and by my goodness, I want to be saved by my religion, you can't keep the law. It's not just that the law has a lot of commandments in it and and you're going to slip up on one of them somewhere someday. It's not just that you're so weak that you can't keep all the commandments. It's not just that you're going to have a bad day from time to time and you're going to miss out on one of the commandments. It's not just that you can't keep the law. You can't even keep the spirit of the law. You see, the law was given to lead us to Christ. The law was given to show us our sin convict us of our need the law was given the commandments were given so that we would be absolutely convinced of the necessity of the saving blood of jesus christ to cleanse us from our sin that's why the law was given that's the spirit of the law that's why jesus talked to uh, uh, the folks in the sermon on the mount he said look you you've got the law in front of you and says thou shalt not kill Don't murder anybody. Look, folks, the vast majority of human beings on planet Earth don't go around killing people. I mean, that's basically true. There's a lot of people who do, do kill folks. They're problematic. But most human beings don't go around killing people. Now, you might want to, but you don't. Jesus said, it's not like you can check that off. Oh, I've kept that commandment. You know, I've, I've never actually killed anybody. I must be somebody great. I'm, I'm a really fine person. Jesus said, look, that commandment isn't about just this narrow definition 
of, of how you view the life of, of another person. It's how you view who they are. Because in your heart, if you have hatred, if, if in your heart you call them a fool, you've already broken this commandment. Fortunately, we don't do that, do we? The guy cuts us off in traffic. What do we say? Jerk. No, we're conservative Christians, and so we say, thou jerk. See, we can't, even, we, we can't even keep the spirit of the law because our heart isn't in it. We cannot give our heart to it. And you can't keep the law because you cannot contain the majesty of the one who gave the law. See, when the law was given, when the Torah was given, it was given so that we would understand something of the holiness and the righteousness of God. The, the, the commandments were given so that we would have a sense of the absolute perfection of God. And these moral commandments having to do with how we live was an expression of how can our lives reflect the glory of God. That's why you were created. And so the, the, the law was given as, a, as an act of God's grace to guide us to see his holiness and righteousness in our lives. But when we take law and religion, we're not interested in the righteousness of God. We're not interested in giving him glory. We're interested in letting other people know how much better we're doing than they're doing and how if they would only be like us, they would be happy. If they would only straighten up their lives the way I've straightened up mine, then they would be happy. Instead of the law leading us to fall on our knees and glorify the Father, the law leads us, when we think we keep it, to boast with pride in our hearts. And so Paul's second response is, you want to live by the law? You want religion? You can't do it. Even if you tried, you cannot do it. It's just not possible. Well, then the, the, the opponents would say something like this. Well, Paul, don't you know we have to be sons of Abraham, children of Abraham? Don't you know that that's how God has worked, that, that God raised up Abraham, and to his descendants he gave all the blessings? Don't you know that we need to be sons of Abraham because in the Old Testament that's the people through whom God always worked? It's not like there's been a division here. It's not as though for 400 years God just sort of grew silent and when he geared things back up after Malachi and he geared them back up in Matthew 1.1 that suddenly God said, you know, that, that thing with, with uh, the law and with Israel, that didn't work quite right. Uh, I, I think I'll try something else. Don't you know it's one story? And it is. One word of God. The scriptures have one message from beginning to end has one purpose from beginning to end. The entirety of Scripture has the same message of grace in the Messiah appropriated by faith. That's a message of the whole uh, Old Testament and New Testament. And so the, the opponents of Paul would come and say, look, don't you know we need to be sons of Abraham? That's how it got started. God called Abraham out of the earth of the Chaldees and said, I'm going to give you a promised land. I'm going to bless the world through you and you're going to have uh, descendants that you can't even count. They'll be like stars in the sky. And Paul, don't you know we need to be sons of Abraham? That's what we need. And, it, and uh, Paul's response to that here in our passage this morning is this. You want to be a son of Abraham? You do know, don't you, that's, that Abraham had two sons. Two sons. And which one do you want to be? 
Which one do you want to be? Now, you may not know the story of Abraham. You may know it. You're going to hear it anyway. But uh, Abraham, when God called him, uh, was promised descendants. He said, you'll, you'll, you'll have a, a whole stream of people following after you in your family line. But that meant at least that you've got to have a son. And so Abraham was looking for a child to be born to him and his wife, Sarah. And uh, that promise had been given by God, and Abraham and Sarah were really excited about it, I suppose. I think the first year after they got that promise, they kept looking at each other. Anything? Now? No? Second year? Anything? No? Third year? The heartache sets in. The pain. The disappointment. Disappointment's too shallow a word. It's too shallow a word. When your arms ache for a baby. Disappointment's too weak a word. And so year after year after year, nothing and nothing. And finally, Sarah gets to the point where she's figured out the old biological clock has stopped. And it's just not going to happen. And she does what so many of us do when a promise of God seems to be delayed. She thinks she can push the issue along a little bit. See, that, that's, that's the way we are. But living according to the promises of God means waiting on the timing of God. Living in the promises of God means understanding that God knows the exact right moment, not just for you, but for the entire creation of when to fulfill that promise. Oh, think of the promises that are seemingly delayed to us, but fulfilled in perfect timing. If nothing else, the Jewish people waiting for a Messiah, waiting for a Messiah, waiting for a Messiah. And then at the right moment in the fullness of time, Jesus is born. The Messiah comes, lives a sinless life, dies on the cross for us, and is raised again in the perfect timing of God. Beloved, we wait now for that glorious day. We wait for when Jesus comes again. For 2,000 years, we have been waiting for the coming of Christ. Beloved, He is coming. It is the promise of God. And when we get to heaven and we look back and we see 2,000 years, we will say to ourselves, where did the time go? It flew by like that because the promise of God, when it's fulfilled, recasts everything. Living by the promises of God means waiting for the timing of God. And, and Sarah wasn't, wasn't quite up to that. And so she went to Abraham and she said, Abe, look... Um, uh, th this baby thing isn't going to happen for us. Let's, let's just face it. Uh, God must have meant something else. Maybe this is what God meant. I've got a, a servant girl with me, Hagar. Got her from the Vikings. And <laughs> see, it's a curse to have your mind run like that. He says, look, Abraham, I got, I got this, this servant woman, this slave woman. Now, the word for slave there is not the normal word for slave. Um, there are many levels of slavery in the ancient world. This, this is a word that meant basically someone who was a household attendant and servant. You're still owned. You're still controlled by, by the, the, in this case, her mistress. But um, uh, it, it, it wasn't like the chattel slavery that, that was uh, dreadfully and tragically a part of our our country's history. But uh, so Sarah says, I, I've got a, a slave girl. She's my attendant. 
I'll give her to you as a wife, and you can have a child with her. Abraham said, well, I don't know, honey. I, I really don't want you. No, Abraham said, yeah, fine, bring her. <laughs> One of the things I like about the Bible is human nature just shines through every bit of it. I mean, you see a real live human beings walking the pages of Scripture. And Abraham is, is, is uh, shall we say, pretty human right here. And so uh, uh, Sarah says, let me give you Hagar, and, and she can be your, your, your wife and, and have a child by her, and that'll count for me. That will count for me. Abraham uh, goes along with, with the arrangement, and uh, sure enough, Ishmael is born. And don't you know, as Sarah looks at Hagar, she resents Hagar like crazy. It's sort of like, God, why her, not me? Why for her what you promised to me? And that kind of resentment just sort of builds and builds. And, and so eventually, you know, Sarah says, you know, it makes life so miserable for Hagar. Hagar tries to run away, and, and God says, no, Hagar, go back. I'll, I'll take care of you. And so she goes back. But, uh, you know, that, that's the situation. Now, about 10 to 15 years later, 10 to 15 years later, every one of those years a disappointment, Sarah conceives. I mean, this is news. In fact, she says, people are going to be laughing about this one. I mean, this is like a really good joke, God. And so she names her child Isaac, which means he laughs. Laughter. And so this son born to Sarah now is the fulfillment of the promise of God that was made to Abraham. So now you've got two sons. One son came about because of human calculation, came about because someone said, we need to do something because God isn't. That's what the scripture means when it says born of the flesh. It means it was born of that mentality. The idea that God is limited, I have to do something in order for God's work to, to, to come uh, to pass. And you have the other son who's the son of the promise. That is, it would never have happened except for the intervention of God. You know, you start to look back and you see the wisdom of God in delaying the promise. Because we look now when we see that there was an absolute intervention of the grace of God for Sarah and Abraham in order for her to have this child, Isaac. So you have the child of the flesh, the child of human manipulation, the child of human thought and planning, and you have the child who's like the bonus baby of all time. Uh, you know, you've got this child who, who is a result of the promise of God, the intervention of God, the grace of God, and the one is born of the slave woman, and the one is born of the free woman. And so Paul says... You want to be a son of Abraham, which son? All right, so let's look at the passage of Scripture here. It's in Galatians 4.21. That was all introduction, by the way. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law. Do you not listen to the law? I mean, it's not like God changed his mind. Whatever God's doing today, he's always been doing. If it's grace today, it's always been grace. 
That's why he's always worked. But look, you, you want to go back to the law? Read the story yourself. So Paul brings it up. Don't you listen to the law. It is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. So you got two sons here. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. That is, this helps us understand the dynamics that we're dealing with here about the authentic gospel. That, that's uh, wrapped up in that word allegorically. These men are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, where the law was given, bearing children for slavery. She's Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Now, at this point, the... Uh, false teachers in Galatia are just a little bit miffed, upset, angry, ticked off, mad. Because when Paul started telling the story and he said, you know, we have, we have two sons here. One is the son of the slave woman, one is the son of the free woman. You know, the, the, the false teachers, they know which son they are. We're Jerusalem. We're Mount Sinai. We're the law. We're the promised land. That's the son that we are. And Paul says, here's the son that you are. You're the son of the flesh. You're the son of bondage. Your Jerusalem is a symbol and, a, and a, 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 just a, a reminder of the slavery to sin that you are in. See, this, this is not what you expect to hear if you're a religious person. You don't expect to hear... The authentic gospel telling you that your religion counts for nothing before God. That's what he was saying. He said, all your religiosity, all that Jerusalem stuff, the way you're treating it, the way you're doing it, you're in bondage. That's, that's what Hagar represents, bondage. Verse 26, but the Jerusalem above is free. That's where we come from. She is our mother. Oh, I was just... Uh, I'll just let you know, when, as I was reading that and studying that, I just couldn't help but thinking about a Re Revelation chapter 21 where the angel comes to John and says, look, let me show you the wife, the bride of the Lamb. You remember this? And so the angel takes John to a high mountain, and there he sees the new Jerusalem, the holy city coming down. That's where we live. The new Jerusalem above, that's free. That's the true Jerusalem. That's what it's really all about. Not a city that we build with our own architects and materials, but rather a city built by the love and the grace of God. Not a city in which you dwell for a few days in history, but a city in which you dwell for all eternity. Not a city in which you're bound and enslaved to the same old passions of the flesh, but a new heavenly city in which you're set free to be a child of God. He said, that's our mother. That's where we come from. That's our lineage. That's which son of Abraham we are. So, verse 26. Just read that. She is our mother. 27. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth, cry aloud, you who are not in labor. The idea here is God's reversal of things. You thought you had it straight. You, you, and this is taken from Isaiah. And the idea is 
um, that, that the, the, the woman who has many children, we think, oh, that's, that's one favored by God. And the upside down is, no, you, you were barren, but God loves you and God's grace is, is, is working in your life. And everything's turned up down, upside down. Those who thought they were righteous must know they are sinners. Those who are sinners can be made righteous. The first are last, the last are first. Those who die for the sake of Christ are made alive. Those who lose their lives gain their lives. You know, it's this whole upside down thing that Jesus has going on. That's what's reflected in verse 27. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now, pull out your highlighter. If you've got an electronic text, use the little highlighter thingy where you know you can boldface and punch something. Highlight verse 28. Now you brothers like Isaac are children of promise. You're not a child of works. You're not a child of slavery. You're not a child of religion. You're not a child of endless rules and regulations that do nothing but frustrate you. You are not a child of conditional love that only if you're good enough will God work and be in your life. You are a child of promise. Your life is defined by the promises of God. You're a child of promise. Underline that. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him born according to the spirit, that is, uh, later on, um, uh, Ishmael actually makes fun of Isaac and, and is sent away. So also it is now. What does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. In other words, get rid of that religiosity. Get rid of the legalism. Get rid of the works righteousness. Get rid of the idea that you have to earn the love of God. Let the son of the slave woman and her son cast them out. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. That's the point. Go back. Verse 28. You, brothers, like Isaac, are children of the promise. Beloved, it's God's promise, not ours. It's the promise God has made to us, not the promise we make to God. We have that mentality, God, if, if, if you'll just do this for me, Straighten out, solve the problem. I'll do the following. Fill in the blank. I'll give more money. I'll, I'll go to church more. I'll read my Bible. I'll say my prayers. I'll, I'll brush my teeth. Uh, you know, I'll take my vitamins. God, you know, whatever it is. Here's what I promise I'll do, God, if you'll just do this. We are not saved by our promises. We are saved by the promise God has made to us. See, Zacchaeus made promises. You remember that when, when uh, uh, Jesus went home with him and in Zacchaeus' house, uh, Zacchaeus stood up and he says, Lord, I'm going to give half my money to the poor. Anybody I've defrauded, I'm going to give them four times as much back. Zacchaeus made those promises. But Jesus didn't come to the house of Zacchaeus because Zacchaeus made a promise. Zacchaeus made a promise because Jesus came to his house. It was the grace of God and the love of Christ that made Jesus stop below that sycamore tree and say, Zacchaeus, your life is up a tree. You come down. I'm going to walk with you, and we're going to go home together, and we're going to fellowship together. We're going to eat together. It was the grace of God in Jesus Christ that changed the life of Zacchaeus. And as a result, in gratitude and worship, he said, this is what I will do. But Jesus did not say, Zacchaeus, if you give your money back, if you restore those you've defrauded, if you change your life, if you quit your job. He didn't say, if you do all these things, then I will love you. He says, you come down, I've got to go to your house. 
And that grace of God in Christ changed the life of Zacchaeus. It wasn't the promise of Zacchaeus. It was the promise of God in Christ. Oh, we are children of the promise. Promises of God to us. Come to me, all who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. It's the promise of God, not our promise to God that saves us. We are children of the promise, not children of the pedigree. We are children of grace, not of race. We are children by relationship, not by religion. Oh, where did we ever get this idea that God was impressed by Baptists? Where did we ever get the idea that God was impressed by church-going Americans? Where did we ever get the idea that God was impressed because we have a better attendance record than someone else. Look, folks, go to church, read your Bible, say your prayers. Led by the Spirit, miracles happen. Be a Baptist. But the only thing that impresses God is the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you don't know Christ, you have nothing at all. We are saved by the promise of God in Christ, not by our pedigree. Oh, the sad, sad answer when you ask someone, are you a Christian? Are you a believer? Are you saved? And they'll say something like, my grandma went to church. They'll say something like, my uncle went to church. They'll say something like, my wife goes to church. Beloved, you're not saved by osmosis. There's no group plan for salvation. We're saved by the promises of God that come to us one by one as individuals. My prayer for you this morning as you sit in that pew is that you would know the glory of accepting the promise of God that if you put your trust, your faith, your hope in Jesus Christ, He saves you. And no one ever can take you out of the Father's hand begins a life of glory, begins a life of growing, it begins a life of learning, it begins a life in which you just keep working and, de and, and developing and, and the Holy Spirit working in your life and moving and, and, and drawing you along. But we are children of promise every step along the way. You know, the glory of the Jews was not that they had the law. Now, Paul says, he says, what advantage do the Jews have? Well, they have the oracles of God. They have the law. They have the sayings of God. He says, here's what else they have. They have the sacrifices. Great. But most of all, they have the promises. The glory of Israel is that God promised his Messiah would come out of their seed. And when Messiah came, the promise fulfilled. Now the promise offered. We are children of the promise. That's authentic gospel. That's why we're, we're spending time on authentic gospel here. Because there's so many 
things, so much stuff that, that attaches to the authentic gospel. And we let that happen. We let our religion, we let our, 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 our patriotism, we, we, we let our class consciousness, we even let our materialism attach to the gospel. The gospel is simply this. God has promised. God has promised. And he is faithful. He is faithful. Why would you trust anything else? Why would you put even the smallest part of your faith anywhere else? Why would you try to have a diversified folio of faith when it's all about Jesus and the promise of God in Christ? He shed his blood for you and promised that whoever calls upon his name will be saved. Pray with me, please. Father, I just thank and praise you for your grace and that you show it to us, reveal your promises to us. But Father, we know that without the Holy Spirit, without your working in us, we can do nothing. So this morning I'm praying for that, that heart, that life that does not know Christ. I'm praying for the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. And that, Father, those who do not know Jesus would open up their hearts and receive him by faith. For brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm praying for the joy of salvation to be theirs. Father, I'm praying that all the clutter around us would be taken away. And that lives would be lived trusting Jesus alone. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.